Welcome to this amazing, mind-blowing podcast. But right now on the line, I'm joined by director of the Tucker Museum, Ian Griffin. Morena, Ian. Morena, how are you doing? Not too bad. Yourself? Yeah, very good, thank you. Very good indeed. Marvellous, marvellous. Right, you're the director of the Otago Museum, but you're also an astronomer and the former head of public relations at NASA's Space Telescope Science Institution. So you're the perfect person to talk about the new James Webb Telescope. But I I guess the first thing uh, about the telescope is it's got a name. Um, So who exactly was James Webb? Well, he was um, an American civil servant, and he was basically in charge of NASA during the, the golden years of the, the Apollo program. Mm-hmm. And um, he um, was honoured by having the telescope named after him um, because of his work, um, you know, getting basically humans onto the moon yeah. and making sure that that program works. Um, a little bit of a controversial person in some ways, yes. and there's been a bit of a controversy about, um, you know, naming the telescope after him because uh, when he was... Um, um, head of NASA, there was um, sort of federal um, discrimination, if you want to call it, against LBTQ folks. And um, there's a there's a sort of certain body of folks out there who think that the telescope shouldn't have been named after him this way. Um, yeah. But it is where it is. And, uh, you know, despite the name of the telescope, uh, it, the telescope itself is a phenomenal piece of kit, which was going to revolutionize our understanding of the universe. Indeed it is, indeed it is. Um, I, I guess, I mean, there's many interesting things about the telescope, uh, and one of them, I guess, is, is the orbit. Um, so what exactly is a halo orbit? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Um, the telescope itself is um, the biggest telescope ever to be put into space. So it's got uh, um, 18 mirrors that collectively make the same size as a mirror, six and a half metres across, which is roughly five times the size of the Hubble telescope. Um, and the telescope needs to be kept very cool because it's observing in the infrared region of the spectrum. And the easiest way to keep the telescope cool is to get it a long way from the Earth um, and a long way from the Moon and in a place where um, you can shield it from the Sun very easily. And that's uh, one of these so-called Lagrangian points, which is a gravitationally stable position, um, which is basically opposite the Sun, about a million and a half kilometres away from Earth. Yeah. And uh, over the next 20 years, the telescope is slowly going to circle around that Lagrangian point uh, as it carries out its mission. Yeah. So it's in this. It, it's not orbiting. It's not a, a Earth orbit. It's a Sun-Earth orbit uh, or Earth-Sun orbit. But essentially, it's going to stay the same distance from the Earth the whole time as well, though, right? That's exactly right, yes. And the good thing about that is, um, obviously, the telescope is going to be taking lots of images and getting lots of information about the universe. And the way you control the telescope is using, basically, radio. And it takes a certain amount of time, the speed of light being finite, to get that information back to Earth. Mm -hmm. So one of the good things about the Grangian point is it's not so far away that, um, you know, the the time lag is very long. So it's a good position where you can get really good observations, but also um, it's relatively straightforward to control the telescope. Yeah. It's not the first thing we've put into a halo orbit, is it? it? Oh, no, no. There's been a few few things out there. And and what's interesting is... um, when they do put something in that orbit, when the, 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 the um, spacecraft completes its mission, they tend to get it away from there because they don't want it to be too crowded because it's such a useful scientific um, place. Uh, so the, they, uh, the, the astronomers and the scientists who are trying to build satellites to get there 
um, make a point of, once they reach the end of their life, being able to get them away from that position so other satellites can take their place. So it's not like a traffic jam out there. Mm-hmm, like there is in Loweth Orbit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, now, it's, like you said before, it's huge. It's the biggest satellite we've ever had. And go- gone are the days of the space shuttle uh, with its giant cargo bay uh, like we had with Hubble. Um, uh, you know, so we would, wouldn't be able to put it in that kind of orbit with the space shuttle anyway. But it's, so this this needed to be kind of folded away like origami. And in turn, there were some pretty tricky events along its way to get to this orbit, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, after it was launched on Christmas Day, um, it's taken um, pretty much, was it, two or three weeks, four weeks now, to get to the final position where it is now safely uh, orbiting um, L2. Um, and on the way, it had to literally unfold. You're right. It's like it's great. Like, I don't know if you, you're probably not old enough to remember this, but there was this stuff called Meccano when I was growing up that you kind of build kits and they sort of unfold mm-hmm. before your eyes. Well, that's really what the telescope did. And that was a really critical phase of the mission because a number of those things, if they failed, that would be the end of the mission. Yeah. And um, I think it was something like nearly 200 individual things could potentially have stopped the mission. Yeah. And it really was, it, you know... Um, this thing has cost the best part of nine billion US dollars, and um, one of the reasons it costs that much is because um, you have to design the engineering in such a way that it doesn't fail. Because um, you know, if this, if one of those um, individual functions had failed on the way out, that would have been the end of the mission. Yeah. Uh, so again, people complain about the cost of something like this, and you could say, well, my gosh, why should we spend ten or best part of nine billion dollars on a on a telescope? But you know, the engineering on that is really expensive and making sure it's going to work every time is really expensive and, and that, that really does add to the cost. Yeah, because you don't want to send it up there and not have it exactly right and have it a waste. And, you know, and, and, and that was something that could have actually happened. A lot of the tests on Earth uh, didn't go exactly right. Um, you know, it was to be launched a long time ago and there were delay after delay after delay because they had to get it right, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and you've got to remember, I mean, um, people now think of Hubble as being this amazing, successful mission. <laughs> but when Hubble was launched in 1990, um, when they started commissioning, they found out that its mirror had been ground the wrong shape. Yes. Um, so, you know, it's only as a result of um, they knew exactly how wrong Hubble's mirror was that they could correct um, the, the, the imperfection in Hubble to, to make it the success it is today. So a lot of, given the, the, you know, the Hubble failure, a lot of time was spent making sure that web was the correct shape uh, on the mirrors and everything would work and again that all adds to cost and it all delays things yeah um yeah but it but it is it's really exciting you know given where we are um as an astronomer i'm very excited um, and we reckon the telescope's going to be working for the best part of 20 years and because it can see things a hundred times fainter than hubble i'm sure we're going to get some amazing discoveries in the next few months and weeks weeks and months and years i I just can't wait to see the first data come down yeah indeed indeed uh and the reason why we can see a hundred times fainter than um fainter than hubble is the wavelengths right well um not just that i mean it's because the telescope is much much bigger yeah so um with a similar camera system because the telescope mirror is much bigger you can see fainter things that's part of the physics of it but um also um, the telescope, unlike Hubble, Hubble works mostly in the optical, where the, the part of the section that our eyes work in. Yeah. Um, a lot of astronomy is done using infrared light because infrared light goes through clouds of dust and gas. And also, because the universe is expanding, a lot of the light from the most distant objects is red-shifted into the yeah. deep red part of the spectrum and the infrared part of the spectrum. So Hubble can study, or oh, sorry, um, the James Webb Telescope can study that light and give us information. 
I mean, I think one of the, um, not, not really sad things, but one of the things that um, we, we won't get with Webb that we do get with Hubble is the incredible pictures. I mean, you know, Hubble is legendary now for these incredible pictures like the Pillars of Creation, um, and they're almost iconic images. Yeah. Um, Webb isn't really going to be taking many beautiful pictures um, because most of its camera systems work in the infrared, and it's much more interested in getting spectra and measurements of, of distant objects. So I wouldn't necessarily expect to see some um, incredible images from, from Webb, uh, although I know the team um, who will be commissioning it will definitely get some out there because uh, when you spend this much money on a telescope, one of the, um, the, 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 what, the what they call the key performance indicators is making sure your first images are above the gatefold on the New York Times. Yeah. So I'm sure when they do get their first pictures, uh, all the people who used to, I mean, when I used to work at Hubble, that was, you know, one of the most important things when I was hired, they said, you've got to get pictures of, you know, taken by Hubble on the front page of the New York Times. So we did it a couple of times, and, and I'm pretty sure the people at Webb will be focusing on that as well. Uh, just to, to, you know, to get the, because the American taxpayers have paid a huge amount of money for this thing, and seeing a return on the investment is a very, very important part of that. That's right, that's right. So Hubble made your job quite easy. Uh, whoever's got your job now, uh, your old job, uh, might, this one might be a little bit more of a struggle, perhaps. Um, well, no, but, I mean, yes, but no, but I mean, I think the other side of it is that while maybe the images won't be quite as exciting, the science is absolutely yeah. phenomenal. I mean, they're going to be looking back to the dawn of the cosmic creation. They're going to be studying, I mean, they'll be studying atmospheres of planets orbiting um, other stars. So it may well be um, that Webb may be the telescope that detects signs of life around other planets, which, you know... In terms of iconic discoveries, that really would be uh, an amazing discovery, showing that there is life not just here on Earth, but somewhere else in the universe. So the science that Webb is going to be doing is absolutely incredible. Mm, mm. Now, we can already kind of, we already know uh, around some of the planets that we see in, in distant galaxies and solar systems and, and the like, we, we already know what some of their makeup is, the gases and stuff, we can tell that by light as well. Um, so what what would this James Webb be doing different to that? Is it the fact that it will be able to see um, smaller planets? At the moment, we can only see, for the most part, quite big ones. So we'll be able to see planets in, in systems and in places that uh, are more potential to hold life than we can see now? Yeah, I mean, the, the fact is, because it can see fainter things, and also it's got some um, equipment, it's got something called a coronagraph, which can basically, it's a little disc that blots out the light of a, a star, yeah. so you can see faint things around the star. And in principle, um, Webb might be able to get spectra of Earth-sized planets. And if you get a spectrum of an Earth-sized planet, you can see what's going on in its atmosphere. Yeah. And that's potentially what, um, that will be the game changer, because potentially, you know, and there's a bunch of ifs here, because this is all new technology, we don't know if it's going to work, we haven't found a planet like Earth that could be analysed yet, but if all those things line up, and I'm sure they will over the next 20 years, then there's a good chance that they'll analyse the atmosphere of the planet, and they'll see um, a gas, something like maybe methane, or something like that, that's a gas that can only be really created, um, you know, by life you know, on, on a planet. They'll see that, and that will be real evidence that there is life elsewhere in the universe, which, as I say, I mean, in terms of iconic, you know, really important discoveries, I mean, for the whole, pretty much the whole of human existence, we've thought, oh, well, we're the only life in the universe. And if we actually find that life is somewhere else, 
that really tells us something um, which is um, philosophically important. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And, and when we, we I, I guess, uh, for the most part, when we think about lives, like potential life on another planet, well, uh, Hollywood always takes over, and we always think it's going to be well evolved beyond our point. But that's not necessarily true, right? We could be looking at a planet that's just got um, things on it like Earth did a mil- uh, 200 million years ago. That's right. I mean, I think, um, you know, I'm not saying that we're going to suddenly go from zero to having Star Trek and that kind of stuff yeah. with, you know, <laughs> aliens traveling between the cosmos. But but the fact, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, Earth is not that special a place. You know, we know that there are lots of stars like the sun out there in our galaxy. And therefore, you know, if life has evolved on Earth, and it evolved pretty quickly after Earth formed, then I think probably science will tell you that actually you know, the conditions for life must be relatively common out there in space. And it wouldn't surprise us that, you know, there might be planets with just bacteria on or, you know, very simple life forms. But, you know, the fact is we still haven't found direct evidence for that yet. And if Webb can do that, that is really going to, I think, inform us as a, you know, as a, as a society that, you know, we're not alone in the universe. And um, again, people often say, well, what's the point of astronomy? You know, how does it help us? Well, it helps address these huge questions and um i think you know if webb does that if nothing else then that will be an amazing discovery oh, of course will webb be. will be doing lots of other cool stuff too and as i say i you know understanding what dark matter and dark energy is i mm. think will probably be one of the key projects um, that we'll get some answers on probably in the next five or ten years yeah yeah so i mean is, is the telescope now pretty much uh you know for its lifespan it's it's got directive it's got jobs it knows what it's doing or you know like hubble you you know and and other telescopes you, you could essentially um, institutions could hire them for their own projects is well, is all its time kind of taken up uh, well every year they have a competitive um, process in fact anybody listening to this radio program can put in a proposal yeah. to use the web telescope um there's a form that you can download and basically you say <clears throat> you say i would like to observe such and such an object for such and such a reason um and every year thousands of astronomers put in proposals like that and then there's a committee that reviews them all and ranks them and i think for the first round of of web observing time for the next year um they had i think six or seven thousand proposals (laughs) for about a thousand slots um and um so the process itself because you know you know astronomy is always changing new things are always being discovered so they do have this annual process so that if something, let's say some, a, 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 um, an interesting exoplanet is discovered by an observatory somewhere else, then next year those astronomers who discovered that exoplanet can apply for time on Webb and use Webb to try and study its atmosphere. So there's a process which um, changes every year and it is peer-reviewed. So it's a really powerful process and it does mean that, you know, that the observatory does good science throughout its lifetime. Yeah. Do you think you'll put a submission in one day? Um, I really, I, I, I was lucky enough to get, I think I had about 10 orbits of Hubble time to yeah. study um, objects in the outer solar system. And I'm still collaborating with some astronomers on that. So, you know, fingers crossed, I'm not as active as I once was. Um, yes. But I would love to get some time on, on Webb because um, it is, you know, it's the best telescope. Well, not on Earth, off Earth. <laughs> and um, having the privilege to use it will be just really, really exciting. Um, and the other thing I would say is that <clears throat> all of the data that, web gets will eventually become public there's a big archive that anybody in the world can access and in fact your your listeners may not know this but um you can look at personally any image ever taken by hubble and there are 
hundreds and thousands of these images. So if you go to the Hubble Space Telescope website, you can go in and download an image of Jupiter or an image of um, a beautiful galaxy and study it for yourself. And that is going to happen with web as well. So all of this data is available to the public. Sometimes there's a, a, um, a, what's it, an embargo period because the astronomers want to make their discoveries with it. So you get about a year after you get your data as an astronomer and then your data becomes public other people can look at it. So um, anybody, in, anybody in the world can look at data from the Hubble telescope and from Webb, and I think that's really fantastic. And um, very often, if I'm bored on a Sunday afternoon, I'll go to the Hubble archive and mm. download some images just to play with. Yeah, I've done it many times myself, actually. Um, right, so speaking of Hubble, what, what now for Hubble? Well, um, it's getting a very old telescope now. Remember, it was launched in 1990. And um, a number of bits of it are failing. There are some things, I mean, it's got, it's got six gyroscopes on board, which basically help control its position. And about four of them have failed now, so it's only got two working. And um, the, the engineers on Hubble are very, very clever, and they've designed, they, they, they figured out a way of making it work with one gyro. But I think um, that the, eventually that will fail. And at that point, when they can't control the, the telescope pointing, that's when it will eventually fail. So um, knowing what little I know about Hubble, I'm sure it's probably got at least another couple of years in it, if not up to five years. Um, and, of course, it was down a little bit earlier this year. It had a couple of failures. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, last year, late last year. Um, but the telescope itself is still operating. It's still getting data. And, and it's still adding to our knowledge of the universe. So having Hubble and Webb working at the same time is a really good thing and if we can keep that happening for a few years that will be brilliant for astronomy yeah and then then it eventually just falls back to earth does it um yes eventually that will be the fate of hubble um and what they'll do is try and deorbit it as quickly as possible so they'll probably change the position of the telescope one last time so it's basically getting as much atmospheric drag as possible and yeah. it will slowly come back to earth yeah. um and actually when it does come through the atmosphere quite a large amount of it will survive so it will be quite an interesting thing you might even find some <laughs> bits on the ground well, I remember seeing Mir come in, um, so it would be quite exciting to see this too. Hopefully we get a bit of the path over, over New Zealand. Well, unfortunately, Hubble's orbit um, doesn't really come down to New Zealand. It's, um, it's inclined at about 28.5 degrees to the equator, so um, we can't really see it from New Zealand very often, so it's very unlikely we would see that. Um, yes. It's not one of the satellites that's very easily visible from this part of the world. Well, that's unfortunate. Oh, well. I do, I'll do. i still ever, forever treasure my memories of watching a bit of Mia come in. Um, brilliant. Yeah, no, well, I'm well, sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, seeing satellites is really interesting. Oh, yeah, very much so. Very much so. Uh, and most people, you know, on any clear night can see um, one or two or three or four go, going across the night sky if they can pick them out. Um, well, I mean, it's fascinating. It's amazing. It's another great leap, and it could lead to uh, even greater leaps. It's got some amazing mission goals. Um, so I guess over the next 20 years, uh, yourself and a lot of your colleagues will be salivating over the things that will come through and the fact that they will be, um, you know, public to a lot of people. Um, a lot of people can get a lot of joy and um, um, discovery out of this thing. So we're excited to see where this goes. And uh, thank you for joining us, Ian. No, great speaking to you, Jamie. Have a great day. Yeah, you too, mate. Cheers. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Right, there's Ian Griffin, the director of the Otago Museum and former head of public outreach for NASA's Space Telescope Science Institute. Uh, follow Ian on Instagram and Twitter and stuff and uh, always putting up amazing photos of Aurora. Uh, from the deep south um, and always um, insightful with uh, amazing knowledge of course um, 
Yeah, and check it out, James Webb website. You'll be able to find all the information there on that as well. And as it comes to hand, hopefully the first pictures will be available in the Northern Hemisphere summer, or the first data at least, anyway. All of our content lives online at r1.co.nz.